0: I finished Bob Iger's book, The Ride of a Lifetime, and found it really interesting as someone who lives in the greater Orlando area, as someone who is a Disney fan and has been to the parks, and as someone who has followed along with the Pixar business acquisition, which there's a previous episode of this podcast on, as someone who has looked into the Marvel business strategy, and someone who has thought about some of these things. Getting the inside view from Bob Iger is is wonderful. And my only criticism of the book is that it didn't go into deeper and richer history and talking about some of the other things that he did, because throughout the book, there's a couple mentions of. Well, we looked into these different things, we thought about all these strategies, and he only talks about the two or the three that maybe are publicly available, and I would just love to know about more history, about potential uh, acquisitions and technology, or some of the other things that Bob Iger worked on and thought about, but didn't necessarily work out or come to the public eye. But today we'll look at a couple of business strategies, a couple of business ideas from Iger's book, *The Ride of a Lifetime*, and and it's really a remarkable book because his career begins with a lucky break. This is what he writes: I came to ABC thanks to my uncle Bob's bad eyesight, and what happens was is um, Iger's uncle had a eye surgery, and he happens to share a hospital room with an ABC executive, and this guy. Uh, talks to Iger and he's like oh yeah I work at ABC in New York City and so Iger thinks that this guy is a real somebody but he's actually kind of lower on the uh, totem pole but what is beneficial is it, it gets his foot in the door and so with a little more luck and a lot more hard work and paying attention to the unfolding lessons in front of him, it leads to Iger's career and it leads to this book, The Ride of a Lifetime. And one of the early lessons that came uh, from working at ABC was working for Rune Ardlidge at ABC Sports. And this is what Iger writes. He says, we were telling stories and not just broadcasting events. And this is so important. It's as important as it was in the 1970s and as it is today. And that what a business needs to do is create context around something. It needs to to frame an issue. It needs to frame an idea. We need to understand why someone is the underdog or how hard someone has worked for for the moment on the field to really resonate. The success of the early sports shows on Wide World of Sports and then relatedly ESPN much later on was that sports had to be told as a story. It had to you had to understand something. Think about how much analysis, how much breakdown, and how much backstory exists for the current 2019 football season. I am sure without actually doing the math that there are more hours of content around the sports than they are about the sport itself. And think about why is this? Why why would this exist in something? And the reason it exists is because it's framing the issue All of these different content companies, including the one you're listening to right now, including this podcast, think that they're framing things in the most accurate way, the way that most represents reality. And and that's really what's happening here. And that was an early lesson for Bob Iger. Iger's early lesson is also kind of a cautionary tale. Sometimes the story we're told is too bold. Later in the book, Iger writes about his very positive relationship with Steve Jobs. And he joins people like Ed Catmull, Kara Swisher, and Ken Cassienda, who all said that there were two versions of Steve. There was the founding of Apple Steve, that's the mercurial Steve, that's the Steve who didn't necessarily work well with others, and the rejoining Steve who came back to Apple, who was calmer, who was older, who was wiser. We hear this clarification. We notice these two different Steves told in different stories, and we can rewrite the history around who Steve Jobs was, but we have to remember, we have to realize that the framing is always happening. We're always seeing things in a certain context. We're always seeing things as telling a story and not just broadcasting an event. One of my favorite examples of this uh, in one that I wrote about in a newsletter called uh, POV40IQ had to do with Richard Nixon's resignation, and Tom Brokaw was there, and this is what Brokaw recalled about Nixon's resignation. Quote, There was this surreal atmosphere in the White House. At the back of the room, there was a lot of staffers. One was teasing another about his haircut, and people were kind of hanging around. It was if that was, was an enormous relief. "'Nixon comes out and makes his speech "'and goes out to the helicopter "'and raises his hands in defiance "'with the victory sign and lifts off. "'One of his counselors turned to me and said, "'I'm going fishing. "'I go back to the office and David Brinkley says to me, "'Did you think he was going to pull out a Derringer "'and shoot himself when he was up there?' "'I said, what are you talking about? "'I was in the room and seeing everything. "'He said to come down to the control room "'and take a look at the television picture.' On television isolation, you penetrated Nixon's psyche at that point. You didn't see the staff wandering around, talking about what they were going to do. It always was for me an instructive lesson about the difference between television reality and real reality. End quote. And this is the framing, this is the storytelling, and we see this in 2019 with all the news, with all the angles, with the different sides, the different bents, the different colors. Everyone is always telling a story. It's the meta story that's happening around the initial story. And keeping that in mind is helpful. I don't know if parsing it is actually possible, about getting to the real truth of the matter, but at least being aware of it, I think, goes a long way. And it certainly helps us get a more complete picture of who Steve Jobs was and the stories that are told around him. In 1985, Iger actually gets a shock at his job as Capital Cities buys ABC. This was instrumental in his development. Part of Iger's good luck is working for smart people and learning the right lessons. From Rune Arledge, he learns about putting on events. From Capital Cities managers, Tom Murphy and Dan Burke, Iger learns about decentralized command management. The attitude at the time was kind of like, who are these guys? ABC was a major network, while Capital Cities was kind of a hodgepodge, but it was a really well-run hodgepodge. ABC's revenue was three times what Capital Cities brought in, but its earnings were only one and a half times that, and the companies actually had very similar market caps, around $2 billion each part of that reason was because Tom and Dan paid smaller salaries in dollars, but higher salaries in trust. Iger writes that some people left after the merger, but we stayed because we felt so loyal to these two men. Why did Bob Iger stay in work? He wrote this, if you stuck to your budget and behaved ethically, Tom and Dan gave you room to operate with independence. There we go. This is really important, and it's something that I see in a lot of different businesses, is that a business doesn't only pay a salary. A business also pays in work conditions. A business pays in personal fulfillment. A business pays in uh, perks. A business pays in a whole spectrum of opportunities for the employees. Some opportunities are going to be really important. And some are not going to be. Like, salary is probably the main reason a lot of people take jobs. But if you get close enough on salary, you can start to distribute other things. That's what happened to Bob Iger here. He was given a certain autonomy and a certain responsibility that he wanted. It's very clear throughout this book that Iger sees his corporate career as a ladder and that he is going to climb the ladder or that he is going to be somewhere where there's a climbable ladder. This will come up later when he gets hired. Uh, when Disney buys Cap City's ABC, but he's very clearly seen a path of promotion. And what this opportunity allows him is to do, to, to, to do more, to operate, and to gain different kinds of experiences. Any situation is filled with different kind of metrics like this. And if they're measured accurately, that is so very important. In a recent episode, we looked at how Malcolm Gladwell talked to Bill Simmons about how Kawhi Leonard wasn't drafted by a certain team because someone thought he didn't do well under pressure based on an interview, where the only metric or the key metric that mattered for Kawhi Leonard was how he performed on the court, not necessarily how he performed while wearing a suit during an interview. And what's key for a business is to get those kind of metrics right, to think about measuring the right things. A decade Later, and things change for Bob Iger, only this time in reverse. Disney buys ABC Cap Cities, and the Disney management model was what Iger writes is the opposite of all of the Cap Cities stuff that he learned. So he got to see the decentralized command structure at Cap Cities, and Disney turns out to be the opposite of all that. And he's working for Michael Eisner. So that's not to say, though, that the Disney model was the wrong model, because strategy always depends on context. Both Iger at Disney and Jason Blum at Blumhouse Productions have successful, profitable, acclaimed movies by following their own strategy. Jason Blum makes low-budget horror films for less than $5 million, and he makes a whole slate of them. And these movies will almost always recoup their money. Blum says that between between American distribution whether that's uh, selling to Netflix or putting things on iTunes combined with international sales that a movie will almost always recoup its five million dollar budget but sometimes movies will hit sometimes those movies will make 20 or even 100 million dollars and so Bloom's strategy is quite different from Bob Iger's strategy where Avengers Endgame is like this 200 million dollar budget or whatever it ends up being and Their strategies both work because the context is different. Blum even says that his strategy changes based on the context, where sequels for Blumhouse Productions don't follow the same rules as original sequels get a higher budget, they get more get more marketing spend, they get more things tied in, because the strategy changes based on the context. So, with this idea in mind, we go to Disney, and we work for Michael Iger, and we temporarily have Michael Ovitz as a boss and Iger is mostly complimentary to Iger he he says that he really refounded the company when he takes charge years later Iger will say that as Disney animation goes so goes the company and this is something that Michael Eisner implicitly understood overseeing the second golden age of the company where we get movies like Aladdin we get movies like the Little Mermaid we get movies like the like Beauty and the Beast That was the creative success, and the business success that Michael Eisner had was tapping pricing power of the parks and of the intellectual property that Disney had. Charlie Munger actually commented on this in a 1994 speech called Worldly Wisdom. This is what Munger said. He's addressing pricing power here. Pricing power existed in Disney. It is such a unique experience to take your grandchild to Disneyland. You are not doing it that often and there are a lot of people in the country. And Disney found that it could raise those prices a lot, and the attendance stayed right up. So a lot of the great record of Eisner and Wells was utter brilliance, but the rest came from just raising prices at Disneyland and Disney World and through video cassette sales of classic animated movies. Another positive lesson from Iger was being out in the parks and seeing how guests saw the thing. This is what uh, Iger writes. I walked miles upon miles with him, that's Michael Eisner, in advance of the opening of these parks and in existing parks too, getting a sense of what he saw and what he was constantly looking to improve. This was something founder Walt at Disney wanted all of his Imagineers to do. Imagineer Marty Sklar is the only person to ever attend the opening of every single Disney park around the world, and he wrote this in one of his books. In the earliest days of Disneyland, when everything was new for the guests and the Imagineers, Walt Disney decreed that every designer was to go to the park at least every other week and stand in the lines, we call them queues, to understand what our guests were experiencing. There's really two ways of accumulating information about your customers, big data and thick data. Walking and talking is the thick data. And it's been used by Tariq Farid to create edible arrangements, where he started talking to his customers at the small flower store he owned and operated. And he started asking them about why they were buying things. And then he's on a cruise ship one time. And he sees that they can cut up fruit to look like flowers and to arrange them in in arrangements like he's doing in his flower shop. So he talks to his customers and he gives out samples and he tries this thing and it works. So it worked to talk to his customers. It's it's used by Carl Turner Jr. As he grew Dollar General stores to have more locations than Walmart throughout the United States. And Turner says that part of the reason his business works is the thick data because he says the people who work at the stores are also the people who shop at the stores, and so they give feedback all the time. The term thick data comes from Trisha Wang, and she says that she saw thick data when she was working in China, and she was waiting in line at dumpling stands, and she was there to figure out what cell phone would the growing in affluent Chinese population by? What would people really uh, want to get? Because if you looked at just a spreadsheet, if you looked at the 30,000 foot view, these Chinese consumers did not have a lot of disposable income. They did not have a large annual income. So if you thought about a cell phone, if you thought about communications as the job to be done, they were going to buy the cheapest, most reliable cell phone possible. And that's what Nokia do, began to develop for the country. But Patricia saw something else because she was on the ground, because she had this thick data. She saw that people were really saving up and people were saving up to the point of of buying iPhone knockoffs, of buying real iPhones. And why would somebody save such a large percentage of their annual income to buy this thing that, that did more than just communicate and what Trisha realized was that the job to be done wasn't understood on a spreadsheet. People wanted to signal something. They wanted the Apple experience if they were buying the real thing and they wanted to appear to others that they were Apple consumers if they were buying knockoffs and that's only something you were going to see if you were there in those lines for dumplings in China. So thick thick data is really helpful, but it's not perfect. We also need big data. Big data is using things like base rates. Big data is A-B testing. And big data is using revealed preferences rather than stated preferences. You are what you buy. But both big data and thick data depend on people being curious. It's about having a wonder about the world. It's about asking why and why and why again. During this phase of Disney, uh, Michael Ovitz was (laughs) temporarily uh, Bob Iger's boss. And he wrote that Ovitz was just the wrong guy in the wrong place at the wrong time. And that same sentiment may kind of be true for Michael Eisner. After 20 years of some good, in fact, some excellent years and some bad, the company needed new leadership. And in 2005, Bob Iger became CEO. At his Very first board meeting, Iger laid out his plan, and that was the idea of focusing on Disney animation as the brand. If Disney does not have excellent characters, then Disney is not the the company that we think. The, the Disney brand is nothing. And Iger said that he realized this one day when he was watching a parade at Disney, uh, one of the Disney parks. And he says that you know you watch the parade and the classic character goes by. There goes Snow White. There goes Cinderella. And then the refounding, the second golden age of Disney character goes goes by. Oh, there's Belle from Beauty and the Beast. Oh, there's Ariel. That's the Little Mermaid. And then. And then you keep watching the parade and it's like, oh, there's the Pixar characters from Toy Story. There's the Pixar characters from uh, Monsters Incorporated. There's the Pixar. And so he saw that it was a shift. Disney didn't have these excellent characters. And and that's what Disney needed. Disney needs the movies to drive everything else about the company. And that's that's what Bob Iger understood. And his book is such a great pairing to Lawrence Levy's book to Pixar and beyond, where if you're at all interested in these ideas, you have to read this because Levy was the CFO at Pixar through the IPO and through the 2006 acquisition by Disney. And what's fascinating is how badly both companies needed each other, where Pixar had no business path. They were two mediocre movies away from disaster and one terrible movie away from financial ruin. And the same story is kind of playing out with content today as different companies try to create different ways to monetize their brand. This podcast episode is being recorded in the fall of 2019. and Right now, the Disney parks are all capitalizing on their brand and their characters. But the adjacent Universal Studios parks are too, where Universal has a um, framed themselves. They've said they've done their marketing and they and they said, OK, if Disney is going to be family friendly, we are going to be scary. And, and the the sequence actually happened in reverse where Universal decided to be scary. And Disney introduced um, something called Mickey's Not So Scary Halloween. But if if you go down to the Universal Orlando parks and you go to some of these scary haunted houses, you'll notice that they're branded where we have all of this intellectual property. We have all this content, and we have different kinds of houses. We've got houses for Stranger Things. We've got houses for, we've got houses for Jordan Peele. We've got houses for Ghostbusters. We've got houses for killer clowns from outer space. We have something called a scare zone, called Zombieland Double Tap. We have a Rob Zombie scare zone, too. What all of this shows us is how important content and intellectual property are to this. And that's the situation that Pixar found themselves in, that Disney found themselves in. Both companies saw that the other half had the piece of the puzzle they needed. Disney needed excellent characters that could drive theme parks and pixar needed a way to monetize the characters they were creating because the movie business as levy found out is such a hard business to execute on its own but if you have a movie business where you can later sell t-shirts where you can get licensing fees for streaming rights when you have all of these other ancillary things that come off of what you've created then you've got something that might be a real business so Iger meets with Steve Jobs. He actually calls him up and he says, Steve, this is right away, right as he's CEO, he realized he's got to do something. So he calls Steve up and he says, "Uh, Steve, I've got this crazy idea. And he says, what if we buy Pixar? And Jobs says, "Uh, um, you know what? That's not the craziest thing I've heard why don't you come over and, and so Jobs is playing it cool but he must have he must have gone into Lawrence Levy's office at the time and he said Lawrence guess who called me Bob Iger they want to buy us because you know Pixar Pixar needed this business model so so Iger meets with Jobs and uh, they come together and, at uh, at Steve's office and there's this 25 foot long whiteboard and, and this is what Iger writes not unexpectedly Steve was the holder of the pen and I sense he was quite used to assuming that role. He stood with a marker in hand and scrawled pros on one side of the board and cons on the other. You start, he told Bob. You got any pros? So Iger writes that he was too nervous and he seated the floor to Steve Jobs. This is Steve Jobs at his just crushing apex. Just just success after success, especially with, you know, Pixar here. And and so this is what uh, Iger recalls about his conversation with Steve Jobs at the whiteboard. Okay, he said this is Jobs. Well, I've got some cons. He wrote the first with gusto. Disney's culture will destroy Pixar. Fixing Disney animation will take too long and will burn John and Ed out in the process. There's too much ill will and the healing will take years. Wall Street will hate it your board will never do it. And, and Iger goes on in the book and lists all of the things that, that Steve had thought about. And, and so he said, uh, two hours later, the pros were meager and the cons were abundant. And this is such a great example because what Jobs effectively does is he creates a pre-mortem. He says, okay, uh, we, we did this merger. Uh, looking back, what went wrong? Uh, and so he lists all these ways that, that it could possibly go wrong. And while nothing is foolproof, it seems like these kind of pro and con lists, these kind of pre-mortems, are great ways to think about the scope of the problem that you're facing. And the underemphasized book sleeping with your smartphone, they call it tummy rumbles, an opportunity for people to share what they think, you know, they're nervous about or what might possibly go wrong. Danny Kahneman says that he was praised at an international conference for elevating the idea of having a pre-mortem. And Michael Mobison calls doing things like this just having brief interludes where people can bring up this, the low-hanging fruit of decision-making. Another thing that Jobs and Iger did really well that helped make good decisions for the combined companies was uh, to argue well. And this is what Iger writes. He says, Steve could criticize me and I could disagree and neither of us took it too personally. In uh, a couple examples from the books, Jobs says that uh, Iron Man 2 sucked and that the value resort that Disney builds called the Art of Animation was crap. And and (laughs) this story about the Art of Animation is really funny where Jobs uh, gets a tour at the... uh, the board meeting the annual board meeting they have in orlando and bob is showing them around and it's a sprawling campus and it's well designed and it's well received and it has a price point that allows a lot more families to come and visit the theme park rather than staying in some of the rooms that cost two three four even five hundred dollars a night and and so steve steve basically says that uh, this is below you you shouldn't have made that and and um, Bob Iger keeps in mind that Steve Jobs is the person who vacations at an adjacent resort in Hawaii to him so they are not the target market and he's able to take all of this in stride and Um, One of the best examples of arguing well comes from Joe Russo who made Avengers Endgame for Iger and Disney and he talked about uh, part of the reason that the movie was successful is because he directed it with his brother so it's these these two brothers that are supervising this huge project and this is what Joe said about uh, working with his brother and that really embodies the idea of arguing well. We've fallen into these roles and have for years where, when an idea comes up, one of us will just assume the contrary position so that we can vet the idea and we'll argue about it for an hour, and the idea either sustains or we come up with a better idea. It's to the point now where people will freak out because we're very passionate and Italians. When we're in a room, it's like, no, that's bullshit, it's never going to work. Then five minutes later, we get lunch. With family, it's easy to forgive and forget when you walk out the door. That's a great way to understand that arguing well is this intellectual exercise where a premortem where you list the pros and especially focus on the cons or what possibly went wrong isn't about the person. It's about the ideas and the situation and not defending yourself and having the right size ego for the situation to keep the things that are important and discard the ones that aren't. In addition to the Pixar acquisition, the book is full of stories from the Marvel, Lucasfilm, and Fox purchases. And each one of those acquisitions uh, recalled themes from Brent. B. Shore's book and, and his podcast, The Messy Marketplace. Is, it's all about figuring out what haven't you told me that I need to know? What part of this is a hustle and not a business? Whose ego is attached here and are they ready to sell? And Iger's book just goes through all of these things and and it's just not long enough that there's stories that could be told. There's there's counterfactuals that could have been explored. There's uh, so much more here. So if you're interested in the uh ideas around a business and why Disney is successful if you're eager to find out more about good decision making. And if you want to read just a, a pretty good book by one of the outstanding CEOs of our time, go ahead and pick up The Ride of a Lifetime. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mike's Notes.